On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I do our mailbag, our first off-season mailbag, and we try to create some structure around it. We talk a lot about um, using the Shane Sigsby episode, which if you haven't listened to, you should go back and listen to it. It was last, it was two weeks ago. It was very good. Um, but we talk about how to build a model. We talk about the value of the market. We talk about the value of points. And then Rufus talks about how he'd like to um, take a better divot. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, bet. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast, um, where sadly, it's just Rufus and I, and I don't even get to see Rufus's face because his camera isn't working, but he's telling me about how great his new camera is that isn't actually connected to his computer. So as always, Rufus is leading us into sort of uh, a tangent of useless information. Um, Rufus wanted to start by diving in and, and using this sort of Shane Sigsby episode as um sort of a, a lead into uh, our, our mailbag episode, which is this is going to be. And, and we, we thank you guys all for sending uh, Rufus and I, I um, Rufus and me, Rufus and I, Rufus and me, so many great questions. Um, first off, recapping the Shane Sigsby episode. Um, I, I think there were some interesting reactions to it on Twitter. Um, I mean, I think it was it was nice that people felt like it was a good episode, and but it still felt compelled to tell me I'm an asshole, uh, which just makes me feel like I'm doing my job properly. Um, but I wanted to start a little bit with this concept of steam chasers versus model builders. Um, did you did you have any thoughts on that, or did you have reaction to that? I, I know that you always say like, oh, I respect both both ways, and blah blah blah. Like people can do things differently. I kind of have an interesting take on, or I have a take on it, but I'd love to hear your take on it. I want to hear your take first here. I mean, my take is that there is this sort of difference in intellectual curiosity. I think that model building and quote unquote steam chasing are right. Like steam chasing is a different type of puzzle that you're solving. Um, and I don't know if anyone can tell the other person that one is more, intellectually interesting. I think they can tell them it's more intellectually interesting from their own perspective, but not necessarily, you know, I don't think there's like value judgments to be placed on them. Now I understand why, you know, like the, the, the steam chase, sorry, the model builder would say to the steam chaser, you're just a parasite off of me. And the steam chaser should say to the model builder, we'll just get a better operation so you can deploy more capital and you don't even need to worry about me. Right. So I think there's a yin and a yang to it. Like one is sort of operations and tactics and the other is like high level strategy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good summary. I, I do think that, I guess steam chasers do need originators to exist. If there weren't sharp moves, then they wouldn't have any value to bet. Um, but I, I agree in terms of the intellectual curiosity, I sort of see steam chasers more as the high frequency traders that didn't really get into this necessarily because they love sports or love, or, you know, have these theories about how these, you know, how games um, will unfold. Whereas I think originators are generally people that may not have gotten into this necessarily for the money as much. Maybe I'm just talking about myself, but, but that, that might have a love of sports and a love of like sort of solving these problems and figuring out what matters and what doesn't. And so I, I don't think, I think if you talk to most originators, even if they could make, and somebody asked this actually in the mailbag, if you could make more money um, being a steam chaser, essentially. Um, but I think they also said you'd have to only get one bathroom break every like 14 hours and you'd have to pee into a Gatorade bottle. Um, but, you know, that notwithstanding, like I, I, even if I could make more money steam chasing, I wouldn't want to do that because it's not what I enjoy about. It's, it's, it's not, that's not my jam, I guess. Yeah, so, I think that's I think that's fair, right? I think that's kind of the way I feel too, which is like steam chasing, um, you know. But like looking at a screen and and playing things that way is not like I I, I enjoy the idea that that I am that 
I actually, what's, what's interesting if you think about it, right? The, the Shane Sigsby world where you get out of a position basically with this, with this, you know, small arbitrage or a large arbitrage in, in many cases, to me, that's much less exciting um, from uh, just following the game. Like I enjoy following the game, but it's, it's funny because like, I remember at one point I was doing um, uh, an interview about the blackjack stuff and someone said, you know, like they did a call and it was like an NPR show or something. And someone called in and said, listen, I, I understand I've dealt blackjack for 25 years. I understand all of the sort of um, card counting stuff, but I just, I just find it's boring. And so I don't do it. And th that's what they said to me. And I said, well, is it, is it more, is it more fun or more interesting to win or lose? And they were like, Oh, I guess, I guess I get what you're saying. And so I think that would be like the Shane and Spanky response, which would be like, it's pretty exciting to make money period. Right. Right. And, and I do think a lot of these people that are steam chasers also move for, for groups as well. And so there's sort of, I don't think everybody is one or the other necessarily. I mean, a lot of times originators need a network of people to sort of get down the action they want. And obviously we've been, people have mentioned sort of some of the downsides to that um, bots and front running. And essentially if you put your information out there and trust people and those people um, maybe shouldn't be trusted then uh, or, or, or not even those people, but basically other people have access to that information, then um, you can end up blowing up the market. Yeah. Which is, yeah. So let's, let's jump in then to the, like, we can talk about the two sides and the questions we got in terms of the two sides. And let's start first with sort of this concept of, of building a model from scratch, being an originator. Um, one of the first questions we'll talk about is sort of from at one better, and it's given all of all the extra attention on FCS football at the moment. How efficient do you think the pricing is compared to a regular FCS season? And how efficient is it compared to a lower level FBS game? So first off, did you even know that there were, there were FCS games going on? I knew there was one game at some point a few weeks ago, but I didn't know that there were actually multiple games and that this was actually a thing. So I don't think I'm prepared to really answer this question. Well, at least I, not in an educated I, what, way. What I, the reason I, and, and we'll go into the next one, which is how does one go about creating a model for NBA, looking to make my own model for sides, totals, and hopefully player props too. I just don't know where to start. If you could punt, put me, point me in the right direction, a few books or websites, articles you would recommend on model building for a complete beginner. And that was from Tyler to GMT or GNT. That's um, a, I mean, I think you start with, figure out which one you're trying to create a model for. Well, that, so, so that's what I was going to say. So I, I think, I think the, 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 these two represent two different types of markets, vast, vastly different markets that you would be building models for. And I think they've created an interesting lens on, um, on how to create a model and, and how to start. And so I know we're not going to come out of this exercise having a model for either sport. But it'd be, I think it's an interesting exercise for us to go through in your mind what the process would be for you starting a model or building a model in each of these. So let's start with FCS football, right? And FCS football, for those of you guys don't, that don't know, is um, the, the second tier of, of uh, college football. It, it's what used to be Division I AA, um, like North Dakota State or something like that. They're they're FCS and and um, my alma mater's FCS is I don't I don't think yours is even FCS. They're like further no, down the division, line, right? They're division. Yeah. Three. Okay. Division. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, come on, Rufus. Did you you really like the one thing that Yale's better to. than MIT? Yeah, you had to go for it. I had to. I had to. <clears throat> Just kidding. Yale's better than MIT in lots of ways. Um, so let's start with FCS football. How would we even begin to start thinking about this? So are we coming from the perspective of someone who's already thought about FBS, FBS football or not? You, I'm just question. saying you, pers you personally, so like personally, right now, let, let's just say how you would go and do okay, it. Okay. The first thing I would do is get data. I think that's, that's always sort of the first so step. Where, See where what data you, is out you, there. Where would you try to go for data? Um, I would basically, well, I would Google, I would see um, there's, there are different places you can buy football data and where I, I buy, I buy some data and there's also stuff that you can scrape. So if you have 
some coding so what are, skills. Rufus, what are, what are you could some, scrape um, all the, you could scrape, let's just, let's, I mean, a simple Let's take version. scraping, sorry. Let's go say, ahead, you, go you want, let's say you say, okay, I'm going to scrape the, the play-by-play um, where available and box scores from ESPN.com or something, or a site like that, that's publicly available, scrapable. I would, you could do that and basically build a database with you. You have not only scores and um, you have scores, um, play by play, hopefully, uh, team statistics. And from there, I essentially try to build out power ratings for different aspects of the game um, that I think are predictive. So, and I think that sort of generalizes across sports. Okay, so, what, are, what are some examples of, pow- of, of aspects of the game that you would wanna look at that you would consider predictive? So it, you could subdivide it into a team's rushing, a team's pat, like passing um, on offense, and then, you know, and on defense actually. So um, rushing against, passing against um, some sort of special teams metric. And then in terms of like looking at this, right, you would, what would you look at just yards per play or, cause you're not looking at like yards per game. You're not like, so like, okay, let's, let's just deconstruct all of this. And so the, you start with the top level stat, like, because what we, what we're going to find is that all, box score data or all scrape data is not created equal, right? Yes, like, correct. There's, there's a lot of data cleaning you're going to have to do probably. Probably if you're trying to do a, build a model for high school sports, you're, you may just have like scores, right? So at the top level scores is, if, if you had nothing but scores, you could probably try to build a model, right? It wouldn't be a great model, but at least you'd have something, right? After that level down, the next thing is some sort of like statistics in-game statistics, right? Like exactly. in-game statistics. And the next level down from that is play-by-play, correct? Right. So in a way, if you have a market where you don't have a lot of data, what you could do is essentially take a top-down approach and create power ratings for each team just based on the scores. And then try to find where teams are, or sort of where um, that's going to deceive you, right? Maybe say, okay, I, I may not have play-by-play, but I have turnover information. Maybe I can take out some turnover luck from that. That's that's sort of one approach. But but in a market where there isn't a lot of data out there, I, I would expect scores are going to be sort of the main driver of where the market is, at least where it's opening. Okay, so let's let's start, and this is a really interesting, right? Because ultimately, if you start with score right? Then there's going to be, and that's basically just like, actually beyond score, you have wins and losses, right? Like, so wins yeah. and losses is the actual top thing. You could build like scores, an ELO, ELO rating system based off of just that. Yeah. And then, and then, and then scores. Um, and so what are some of the things, let's just t- talk about three things that you might want to tease out in football. One you're saying is turnover luck. Another is, is probably like, um, like actual, uh, like contextualizing data at some way in some ways, like, right. Did this team score a lot of points um, because they ran a lot of plays or, you know what I mean? Like the, like was the actual score environment of the game very high, meaning like they got a lot of possessions and their defense was bad. So like that's some sort of like per play metric. And then maybe a third is, is actual contextualizing, which is like understand like, or like play success at some level, right? Like, how successful were their plays in the, and, and I guess all of these f- fall into the lens of like contextualizing at some level, right? Well, I would say, so the, the sort of per play metrics and, and sort of uh, like and play success, um, which is a per play metric, I, I would sort of say, I would take that as more of a bottoms up and to try to sort of say, okay, how is, how are these things predictive of score? But if you don't, um, but what, what I can sort of sit, consider contextualization is adjusting for, um, adjusting for game situation and adjust and, and sort of the big one is adjusting for opponent quality. And so you might have a situation where you have um, you have two football teams that both have played in high scoring games. And one of them tends to play, you know, when they play other, when they play higher scoring teams, they or teams that play with a fast pace. They sort of take on that other team's pace. They, they, I guess they're a pace taker rather than a maker. Right. And other teams that sort of say, this is the way we do the game play. We're going to play fast regardless of who we're playing. Um, and so basically using regressions, you can, you can sort of tease that out, but you have to realize when you're, when, if you're doing 
Uh, so, so one common technique to create, like the, uh, probably the simplest way to create a power rating um, for something is to, to run a regression on a, uh, on a set of dummy variables for each team and opponent, which basically is saying, okay, this is the best fit to explain what has happened this season in terms of whatever you're modeling, be that score differential, um, which team wins, um, et cetera, how many points are scored. Um, but that's going to, um, that is going to severely overfit. So you also need to, you're going to, there, there's some regression to the mean component that should come in there. And that kind of leads me to one of the questions out here um, from, where is it? Rufus, can I, can I comment on one thing before we move on to the next question? Um, so one of the things, and, and I talk about this a lot in, in the, the speaking I do at, on the business level, but the sort of foundation of any sort of excellence in analytics, um, I always talk about there being like three things on the bottom, it's data, on the second, it's analytics, and on the third, it's implementation. So it, it sort of like fits really well into this model for sports betting, right? Because at the core of this idea of data, right? Like the, the best way for you to gain value, gain an advantage in sports betting is to have information asymmetry or, or data that no one else has, right? Right. And so I wonder if in the world of college football, like FCS and, and, you know, like data asymmetry is, is, is not, it, it's not a thing. It's, it's a, it's a hard thing these days. Right. I think in some respects you feel like you have it in golf. Um, but I don't, I don't really in golf. I don't think there was a point in time where you thought you had it in golf. Can we, can we say that? I, I don't even think so. I've always, I've, my strength has always been, I thought that sort of analytics and implementation okay. and having good quantitative data, but in terms of like connections with golfers and stuff like that, I feel like there's plenty of people with more of that. No, no, no. That's not what I'm oh, talking okay. about. I thought you were talking about like, I'm talking about, yeah, no, I'm not sorry that, that there I'm sort of conflating two things, right? I'm conflating in real information asymmetry with actual, like a data moat, a, a data, a right. source okay. of data. So, no so I think has. I have, right. I think my database, I have probably better data than, uh, yeah. I, than you, you feel like you have a data moat for sure. A little bit, right? A little bit. So, so I, I wonder in like the world of these, these edge sports, right. Or these, these periphery sports like FCS, if there's a, if there's more of an opportunity to get either information asymmetry or a data moat, certainly information asymmetry. Yes. A data moat, like I literally wonder if you called someone at Yale's sports information department, whether you could get them to send you past data that isn't available on the internet that they just captured because they want it for their internal records or they want it to be able to like, you know, keep track of like what the, who the steals leader is or who the, you know, touchdown leader is or whatever. Um, and if you did that for enough schools and enough conferences, whether you could compare create a data mode. That's a, that's a good point. So, and I, I especially think more as like FCS isn't completely esoteric, but, but you know what, like Ukrainian ping pong or whatever became big during the pandemic. And I wonder if there's, you know, people were reaching out and actually getting data on that. I mean, if, a if long, long have data that existed, that wasn't online or anything like that. A long, long time ago. I, when I, when I used to like, you know, actually like bet more and think more about this stuff, I, I, I would call, SIDs or, you know, sports information departments at schools and ask about players. And I would like read all of these sort of newsletters that they, that they sent out and things like that to understand like what was going on. Um, because I, I did feel like at that point, there was a little bit of a information asymmetry. So I wonder if that still exists. Okay. Sorry. Move on. Where, where were you were talking about a, a tweet that you thought? Um, oh, no, no. So, so iced Sandman said Rufus a while back, you agreed to delve into why priors matter and how you value their importance. Would love to see you touch base on this. And I think what I was saying in terms of sort of a simple framework, just using dummy variables to, uh, to create a power ratings, but to create power ratings is, um, a good sort of segue into that. Um, because I, as I mentioned that that's going to overfit things, but if you look and see, essentially, let's say you do that for, um, each season. So pet, you have data on previous seasons, you have these sort of re regression coefficients for each team. Um, and you see how well, like one season predicts the next, that's a sort of simple way to, to create a prior. So maybe, um, and, and you might have these essentially, um, these coefficients, these power ratings for different, different statistics. And you might say, and that's, for example, how you see that, okay, maybe getting a lot of interceptions is not something that's predictive from year to year because 
sort of a team's coefficient there, you know, for one season is not very predictive of what their coefficients can be for the next season. So based on that, you can kind of come up with your expectation of how good the team is going to be in these different areas going into the season. And that's kind of, that's, that, that is a prior. That's how, what I consider a prior, my preseason expectation for a team. And as the season goes on, I've, I, I figure out how much to weight um, what I observe during the present season relative to sort of that expectation going into the season. Um, and, and that's, that, that's done um, empirically, but also logically, you don't want a situation, you, you don't, it's very easy to sort of overfit things where you have a situation where you say, okay, after four weeks, I'm waiting the prior more than after three weeks. That wouldn't make sense. You want, so I, I you know, I build a, a smooth function out um, and that's, that's sort of how I, uh, how I handle priors. Obviously your priors can be very, can be very um, informative or they can be very uninformative. One prior could just be like, I'm going to assume that every team is average going into the season and I'm going to change off of that. Um, or it can be, you, you can be using program data for many years. You can be looking at recruiting for football. You can be, you know, um, looking at sort of the inflow and outflow of, of, of players through the transfer market, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, but sort of the framework of prior versus in season is sort of the same, I think. Okay. And you, and you can even get more detailed on, on how much strength you put in the prior. So maybe for a certain team, you're like, like Alabama, I'm pretty sure of what they're going to be every season. As long as they have Nick Saban as the coach and all these five-star recruiting classes coming in, they're going to be like really good. The, their floor is very high. Whereas maybe a, you know, a team with a new coach, like there's more uncertainty there. So maybe you'll be a little more quick to react to sort of changes relative to expectation early in the season. Um, so, right. Yeah. So priors are when you talk about like art versus science priors are, are a fair amount of art in your mind. I mean, I think sports betting is art and science at the same time. No, I know. It's, it's asking the right question point. and then sort of having the data tools to answer that question. And so I think priors, yeah. I mean, you priors can be art for sure. Okay. So let's move on very quickly to the MBA, building a model in the MBA, which is obviously like a good one for you because it's obviously a very liquid market and it's pretty mature in terms of model building, but you don't have a model in it because I know you don't really bet in the MBA. Um, from your perspective, you as Rufus Peabody, you know, did you, by the way, did you know that, that Bill Simmons did have a dog named Rufus, which is funny. To talk I, about? I did not know that. It's funny. Um, so it's good taste. <laughs> I think he might've spelled it R O O F U S, which is kind of what I think you should legally change your name to. <laughs> um, so what, um, how, how would you, how would you go about NBA differently or, or would you even, or is it just the exact same process? Um, it's the same framework, I think, sort of the in-season, the prior versus the in-season. But I think how no, you No, 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 I'm not props, talking about prior specifically. Right, I'm just talking right. about building a model from, so from scratch. If, if, if you're trying to build a model to beat player props, I think that's different than beating sides and totals. And so if I'm using player props, I'm going to be kind of using a sort of top-down framework. I'm going to assume that the market is correct on a lot of things or efficient on, on a lot of things like um, the spread and the total. So the market's projecting this team's going to score 103 points. Um, I'm going to take that sort of as given, and I'm going to sort of look at allocating, you know, how, how to sort of allocate those points. Like what percentage of the team scoring is going to, I'm going to model what percentage of the team scoring comes on, on two pointers versus three pointers. What's the, you know, the expected number of, of free throw attempts they'll have. Um, and then sort of sort of subdivide that uh, sort of like in football where you have sort of target share for receivers. I'm going to sort of look at usage rate, for basketball players and, and what percentage of shots will, you know, which, what percentage of three point shots will this player take? What percentage of um, two point shots? Um, you know, how many available rebounds will there be and sort of allocate that based on, you know, because, because, you know, you will get, well, the rebounds for a team are going to add up to hundred um, percent. And so if you can sort of model the, relative contribution of a player to the team, I think that's, that, that is one way to approach it. And, and that's kind of the approach that I've used for, for football props. It's, it's top down in that way. Obviously it's bottom up in terms of building out the, uh, the relative player contributions as well. So um, it's kind of a hybrid there, but, but that's kind of how I would go about it. 
It's it's interesting because you not you sort of I don't even know if you realize it, but you naturally went um, to player props as what would be interesting to you in the NBA versus like even worrying about like sides and totals. And I think that's like a, a little bit of like an indicator of you know the fact that you you feel like the player props might be a little less solved. But they're going to be less efficient. Like sides and totals are just hard markets to harder markets to beat. And so if you're going to get your start, I highly recommend starting with props. What if we did player props in FCS games? Um, Just kidding. Yeah. You want $20? Uh, I do actually want $20. Is that, was that, was that a non sequitur or does that have anything to do with this? No, I mean, I'm just assuming limits are like $20. I I know it was, it was a joke. Okay. 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 Let's move on. We, we, we covered model building. Let's move on to reading the market. I think that was more yeah. we more than we've talked about model building in a long time. Well, it was, yeah, it was a, it was it. a it was a relatively good conversation for yeah. us relative to our normal conversations. So um, let's let's go to reading the market and um, the first question, and, and we talked about this a little bit on the Shane podcast, which was, are all reverse line movements in basketball pro and college indicative indicative of sharp money, and. So what I, what I liked about like Shane's answer to the sort of reverse line movement question was basically like, he just wasn't even, he's like, Oh, I've heard about this, whatever. And you know, the, the reality is that like someone like Shane is looking at not like bet percentages or amount of money bet. He, he kind of like can understand who's betting what based on like the signature, like the timing where it's bet etc and uses that to understand how to read the market yeah, the betting um, footprint and, right so so i would say that the answer to this question would be like no i mean the, the, the it, they're not like there's no like there's there's uh this definition of what a reverse line movement is is based on data that is is largely um meaningless do you agree with that yeah by and large for sure i don't know that much about this but I agree that all line movements are definitely not the same. And when you see that, oh, this, you know, whatever percentage of money has been bet on this side and, and the line hasn't moved, um, it could be a setup. It could, you know, it, and additionally, I mean, I, I think you see these narratives that, oh, this is the sharp side, this is the public side. Um, and you can say that certainly like if the market is minus seven now, then yeah, minus five and a half was the sharp side at that point. But that doesn't mean that minus seven is the sharp side. Um, and so, although I guess that's not reverse line movement, I guess is, is where the well, majority so of another... money is coming in on one side, but the line is actually not. No, the, the, the whole pers- the whole like concept of it is that there is more money on one side and the line moves opposite the other right the other way and 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 what what shane basically said was like he doesn't care because those bet percentages mean nothing to him because he has a better indication of where smart money is and and you know the line moves whatever so like but but jeff at that point the line has already moved so maybe all the money's on the underdog but the line moves from minus seven to minus eight like which is, minus which eight is, is not now the sharp side. Like which is that, the yeah. the other thing, which is the other thing that he said, I thought that was really good, which was this idea of, uh, you know, like we've talked about there being a sharp side or, or not sharp side, if that's, if that's true. And, and you've kind of always pushed back and said like, well, what is the sharp side? I know that there were sharp people on both sides, specifically in the NFL. His point was more, yes, there is normally a sharp side, but it's at a line or a price that pretty much no longer exists because because it moved. So you kind of know that that was the sharp side, and and you know, and, and so it's 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 kind of interesting to think about because ultimately it goes back to this whole concept that that prices matter, and so that maybe is a good sort of uh, segue into this concept of CLV and the value of points, right? Right. So. Um, the first question is like, how valuable is half a point, one point and two points of CLV and college basketball totals? And my guess is that you don't know that, right? I mean, I could tell you depending on where you were. So in college basketball totals, if, um, I mean, so I define CLV basically as, and everybody does, I, people have slightly different definitions there, but it's basically the edge, um, the edge, if you were betting the price you got at, um, 
with the closing line being the true price. Right. It's, it's the difference in edges, bet- difference in ROI between the two bets, basically, right? And so, you know, if you had a total that, um, let's say you had a total that closed at 120 in college basketball. Okay, that's a low scoring game, just so you know. Of course, very low. It's like UVA, right? Now, UVA is like 100, but like, go ahead. Yeah. You know, if, if you got, um, if you were able to bet it, the over it, uh, uh, you know, 118, um, you know, the true price, the true price equivalent there is minus 123 to the over. So that's, um, but at the same time, like if you were betting, let's say. Wait, 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 I didn't understand. Hold on, I didn't understand that. Okay, so you bet it at 118. You bet it closed at 120, and you're saying the true price equivalent is 120. Well, if you believe if you believe the closing line is efficient, and that's kind of that's that is the sort of central premise behind closing line value being valuable, right? Because the closing line is more efficient than the line at any other time. It is the best prediction. That's what people like Spanky will tell you. Like if you're not getting closing line value, you can't win. Um, I don't know if that's this is. I mean. That's a whole nother topic, but I think we all agree the closing line value is is valuable. You would like to you would like the market to agree with you, and you, and so if you're evaluating this game based on the 120 being an efficient price, being 50, percent then in that case, um, the chances of well the the true price for over 118 would be 55.2 percent. So a line of my so which comes out to a line of minus 123. Got it. I'll cut it. Okay. But let's say there was a total where uh, a total that closed 165 and you bet over 163. In that case, it's only 54.8%, that 163. So it's going to vary depending on, on where you are um, and depending on the variance, which, which is going to be a function of sort of the variance. So a higher total game is going to like in, in basketball is going to have more variance in, in where that total ends up. Um, and, and for sides too, there's certain, it's not, it's not, not as much as football, but there are certain points that are worth a lot more. You know, you don't see, you know, you don't see one or two occur as often as you do six or seven. And yeah. So there isn't a hard and fast rule about, you know, one point is worth X amount, but well, the, 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 the value like... of a point or a half a point depends on where you are. Okay. Um, and depends so... on, depends on how, how likely game is to land on that value so it's about knowing those push probabilities so rufus can i can i clean this up a little bit then this discussion because okay so on the college basketball thing essentially what you're saying is that you know as as totals go up i.e the scoring environment is larger um obviously there's there's more variance and the value of a point is is less right right that's that's it's just a very simple way to say it so And then in, in the world of, of football, scoring is not distributed normally. It ha- it's like modal around certain points and certain like distribution, like it's like a whatever modal distribution, right? Like it's, it, it, it's, 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 it's not a distribution you can even really like. Yeah. It's not a, and be, it's, and because it's not of a classic that, distribution at all. And because of that. So how, how static are these uh, point percentages, meaning like how much have they changed, like in like in the in football, let's say, how much have they changed over time? And that, that would actually be a really interesting question for Shane, which would be like, how, how much have you changed these over time based on the fact that scoring has changed? It's, yeah, that's a really good, a really good question. I mean, I, like back when you had the two point conversion that changed things. So before that it was very different. And if you were do basing- you, Do you, I mean, do you know, you must know that to some degree, right? A little bit. So you also have, so what it was 2015 where you had the longer extra points, which essentially create, which have changed the distribution a little bit, but you don't have that much data. So honestly, a process like what, um, what Matt David Allen deck prism has to sort of simulate is going to be able to adjust to rule changes a lot better and to differences in sort of the scoring distribution to be able to model that better than somebody that's just looking at the actual results. Because, you know, if you have only, like, let's say they moved extra points and made them um, 40 yards next season um, and moved the two-point conversion back to the four-yard line, what does the distribution look like? It's going to be different. But if I, I'm not going to be able to know it just based on data in, in previous years, unless I, you know, you, 
I would have to take more of a bottoms up approach there. Whereas what I'm doing generally for this um, is more of a top down approach. Got it. These push probabilities. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. Let's move on to sort of mental aspects and general learnings. Um, from uh, big learnings. dog one 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 nine nine nine. I wonder if um, one 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 nine nine eight was taken. Uh, podcast question: Earlier in your career, how did you deal with significant losing streaks? How did you remain confident? Did you ever start to think I'm not good enough, or maybe my process is broken? Broken or Borkin? I think they put Borkin. I named my process Borkin. Uh, okay. Is this, you want me to answer this? Sure. I, and maybe the same question should apply to you for, especially for like blackjack. So, although I guess I don't think you were ever. Well, no, it's a, it's an interesting, it. it's yeah. an interesting contrast. Okay. So we can talk one is about a closed that, system. The other is an open system. So I think yes. because sports betting is an open system, there aren't defined rules. It's, you know, they're, yeah, uh, it's, it's constantly changing. Um, it's something that, that I'm always sort of wondering if I'm still good enough and how I dealt with significant losing streaks early in my career. You know, it, I think I, I would wallow for a little bit. I would, I would also stop following the games. And I, that's something I still do to this day. If I'm on a bad streak, I just, I, I spend less time like looking at what's going on in the games. Like if, if, if I'm on a hot streak though, like I'm fine watching it. So I think that's kind of adaptive at least in terms of my happiness, but I still remember this really bad streak we had in 2010. We'd had a really, really good first half of the baseball season. And then we just kind of like tanked in July and August, um, which started a trend of my baseball not being good in July and August. But uh, in golf, uh, it was what my second year betting golf. Golf had a really bad run at the same time. And, and we had um, basically over two months, my partners and I lost like high six figures there. And I just, I remember driving back out to Vegas from the East coast and just being like, I'm going to work so hard and make sure this doesn't happen again. And obviously, you know, you, there are, there is, um, well, there's so much uncertainty that, that you can't guarantee that, but, uh, but it motivated me to work harder. And so I think that has been something, a trait that has been, um, been very, key to, to the fact that I'm still doing this a decade later. So Rufus, when you reflect on that time, do you think broken process or unlucky? I think, I think unlucky, but I also think process, but, but it's these sort of series of times refining my process that have made the process better. If I kept the process the exact same, if the model was the same now as it was 10 years ago, I wouldn't be winning now. And so generally, I, I tend to work harder when I'm losing than I do when I'm winning. When you're winning, you're, you're, you're fat and happy and you're okay with just, you, you just want to keep rolling kind of. It, 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 there's not as much motivation when you're, when you're winning to sort of, sort of improve things and question your assumptions behind things. It's, it's interesting because you and I have talked a lot about sort of the difference that you, we, we all, how we follow games or how we sweat games and sort of like how, and I'm sort of the opposite, right? If, if I'm, if I'm losing, I'm sweating every game because I just want to, like, I want to see the ball go through the hole, right? I just want to see like something, something win, right? But here's like the I, question I, for you, Jeff. So are you the kind of person that when you're watching, let's say you and Cheetah are, wa are watching an NBA game, are you testing him when things go poorly or when things go well? What do you think? Poorly. Well, he's testing me when things go poorly, right? Okay. Like he, he's the ultimate in the, um, he's like a believer in the power of negative thinking, right? Like he's like trying to reverse jinx things, but he's so negative as he does things. Um, I personally, I am more, I mean, it just depends. Like, I guess there are moments in time where, where, you know, like, uh, like last night, he was on Georgia tech or he had, he had texted out like Georgia tech uh, plus one and a half against Duke. And um, it, it closed uh, Georgia tech minus one. Um, so there was some CLV there and, you know, the, the, the game Georgia tech was up, I think by close to 10 with like three or four minutes left. And I had to stop paying attention to it at all. And then I happened to go on Twitter and, and saw like, um, 
I don't even remember who it was, but someone complained that 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 um, George Tech was going to blow it, and I was like, oh my god! And, and it ended up going into overtime, and I was shocked that I didn't get a text from Cheetah about it. Um, George Tech ended up covering, um, but it, it's um, I, I don't know. Like I I I definitely um, when, when I'm in that like losing streak mode, spend a lot of time uh, sweating games, and I just but when I, when I am winning and it's just, you know, um, business as usual, I, I really don't spend nearly as much time sweating games. I just don't even, sometimes I won't even pay attention to them because I just expect to win. Oh, we're, we're like the opposite there. Do you just I like know. pain? We've talked to, we're, we're the opposite on a lot of this stuff. Right. And, and, but I do think like anytime that there's adversity or whatever, there, there is much more of a focus on, on, you know, trying to work harder on things or trying to like refine your process. And then in the in terms of the question of like this versus blackjack, I mean, I tell this sort of what I consider famous story because it's my story, but the story about losing $100,000 in two hands of blackjack um, early on in my blackjack career, probably six or seven months in, um, where, um, you know, I had to figure out whether I wanted to keep playing. And, and you know, I, I, I do think that was a very formative moment for me to like, believe in a process and, and not like get, you know, overcome by all these cognitive biases, like loss aversion or, you know, short-term thinking and, um, you know, like process versus outcome. Um, but it, again, like I, I do, people ask me all the time, like, you know, when, when I talk about all this blackjack stuff and, and how like it's the perfect Petri dish for data-driven decision-making, you know, I, I, how basically like I think about the real world that isn't so perfect as blackjack is. And, and I don't have an answer that is, you know, as good as what I would have in blackjack, which is like, you know, I know that over the long haul, it's, it's going to work. So, okay. Um, anything else in this? What is something, what is something, you know, now about how this is from John nail one. What is something you know now about how sportsbook casinos work that you wish you would have known when you first started out in your sports betting blackjack endeavors discussion on mistakes made early in your career? That's a tough one. I don't really have a good answer for that. There's nothing. That Why did you highlight mind. it then? <laughs> I thought it was a good question. I, I, I hoped a good answer would come to me. What about the one below that? I think that's a similar question. What are some John Dale, I'll get back to you when I think of something. This is from Konzi uh, E. E. That's e. Konzi e. Got it. I mean, what that's not actually how to pronounce his name. I think you, you should know. Is, I, no, I think this guy is well, I'm not sure if it's like a, a name or a handle. That's all. And now I think you're I, now I get it. Uh, and I do think I know that I, I know this guy yeah, I, know. I think he's an he's an he's an engineer in the Anyways, what are some betting related things you've revised your opinion on over the last couple of years? I don't want to say, I mean, maybe it's not the last couple of years, but I think how I value qualitative information, I think early on in my career, I kind of was more dismissive of it and believed that sort of a model could do basically anything. And I think, I I think, I think you've changed that. That's actually almost less. That's like been in the last like year and a half. Because I've definitely noticed you paying more attention to that stuff, especially, and I, I honestly think that COVID was a real driver of that because you just felt like there was just a lot of stuff you didn't know and people like Cheetah or, you know, like, like, like knew it, right? And like, he, you, you needed him this year in college football to kind of help you get through the season with, with, without actually having to like spend time like looking at, you know, websites and Twitter and whatnot, right? Yeah. And, and actually, actually going back to John Nail's question, I think something I now know, I mean, I, or, or maybe I wish that I would have done when I was like earlier on in my career. I think when I, when I moved out to Las Vegas, I, I kind of thought I knew the answers to everything. And, and I think I've got like gotten more humility as I've been in this for longer. And I think that it's, you, you learn a lot more when you're, when you're humble and when you're, than when you think you know everything. Okay. We have nine minutes left. Um, I want to table the golf betting stuff because I think we can do a whole episode on that where we also bring in um, another golf better. And, and maybe we do that as a lead into the masters. Cause that's what we should, we should away. see if we can get, um, get Matt from data golf on. Okay. I mean, I'm there, sure we can. Cause a lot of these questions, I mean, there are questions on like, do I think data golf is 
made the market more efficient and all that. And, and Data Golf actually put out this really cool tool that I'm I'm a fan of, um, a that allows you people to do custom simulations, sit to run simulations themselves and integrate it with an odd screen, which is I think a really cool product. Okay, so so we'll table that. Um, we'll talk. Let's talk to two subjects. One, future of sports betting in the U.S., and then we'll we'll do a couple quick personal things on us, um, and then and then we'll end. Um, future sports betting in the U.S. Um, the the sort of questions around. I think there was a question around like the exchanges and whether we think those are going to happen. When are those going to happen in the U.S.? Um, there's questions about like um, sort of where I think things are going. Um, you know, I think we're in for a slog for the next five to 10 years where there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of um, immaturity in the market. The complaints that you see from people like Spanky and Cap'n Jack and, you know, they're just going to continue because people don't really know what they're doing. Um, and I, I wonder, and, and I still don't know, but if I were to bet, I would bet, I would guess that this is going to move still much towards recreational than towards professional and that it will lead. What does that mean, Jeff? What what does that mean? Moving towards recreational rather than towards. I think think recreational is William Hill. And I think, um, you know, more serious or financial is like an exchange. So does, does, when you say William Hill, do you mean a book that, that bans or limits? Yeah. Books limits. Or even people that just aren't losing enough. Yeah, small, small limit, small limits, you know, like funny, funny prop bets that, you know, drive, you know, uh, marketing dollars or marketing like, uh, like the kind of margins or hold that like Barstool got in there, you know, like those, it's going to move to, you know, a a thing that's much more about, um, about entertainment than it is around supporting anyone to, to actually make money. It's like, you know, uh, blackjack switch versus actual like three to two blackjack, like blackjack switch is this like weird version of blackjack where you can switch your cards with or something like that. That's a good analogy. It's, it's going to move more towards that stuff, which it's just like more quote unquote entertaining, but a much higher hold rate than it is to like a, you know, smaller hold rate, higher volume, you know, more turnover that could be better for the sports books, but really they're not, they're not thinking that way. By the way, did you know that yesterday was national blackjack day? I did not know that. Three, two, three to two. Is that why is, did they really call it that? It is. Yeah. Captain Jack told me this actually. I said, I mean, but I feel like eventually, you know, well, we're moving towards a world where June 5th becomes, becomes blackjack day. Aren't we? Um, Get it. Get it. Yeah. Get it. I get it. I get it. I do think so to, to, I guess, respond to what you said there. um, Yeah. I'm not super bullish on the industry, but I do think there are, I am excited about certain outfits that I think are going to be um, trying to make a play in the space. I mean, uh, some of the big offshores in terms of the B2B stuff. And so I I don't know what that's going to look like. I mean, I guess the worst possible scenario is like these recreational books have sharp lines, but also limit people that, but I do think, I do think eventually we will see, we will see sort of a, at least a niche for um, for an exchange or, or something, some model where a high turnover, low hold model. And I, I, I mean, it, I, I think it, we'll, I think we'll see an exchange launch in the U.S. by the, I think also we'll see an exchange launch in the, well, not in the entire U.S., but at least in one state, like by the end of this year. I'll, I'll take, I'll take the under on that. So you think, yeah, well, the under on within this year? Yeah. So you believe- I mean, the over will... over on this within this year. Okay. So that's not the under. That's the, the, the opposite. Sure. The but you okay. understand what I'm saying. The okay. under is so always like a very unoptimistic look. So that's why I said the under. Ah. Okay. <laughs> Do you, are we vetting this or not? Oh, we can. Okay. Let's Let's- thousand dollars to chair to charity of the choice sure and we'll let our listeners choose this our seven listeners choose the uh, charity yeah that's right, good. done okay uh Moving one on. person one do we want to answer any personal questions or like the the yeah, snooker well, bet the golf bet the golf like, honestly i had to look up what snooker was i was like 
Yeah, I, I yeah, I've never played. So, like, for those of you guys who hate our nonsense, feel free to stop listening right now. We're gonna have two minutes of nonsense each, um, or one minute but, of nonsense each. Well, Jeff, what I really care about though is your Catan game. Someone asked Catan, about Catan, Catan strategy. Catan. Sorry, Catan. Catan. So I, so Nevada, I play Catan. Not I Nevada, play Catan. It's Catan, I, not Catan. Is that right? I, I think it's Sellers of Catan, but who knows? I mean, so I, um, I play online. Um, I play in Catan Universe. And I almost play exclusively Seafarers, which is one of the expansion packs. And I play a variety of different scenarios in Seafarers. Um, probably my favorites are Treasure Island and um, Through the Desert. And um, I, I think my strategy varies depending on what the scenario is. And for most of you guys that don't play Catan, you're like, what an idiot, what a nerd. Um, but, um, during COVID I've, I've felt like it's one of the ways that like, I like things I like to do at night that it's actually just like kind of fun to play on my iPad while I watch some bad television or sports or something like that. Um, I think the thing that I've, I've realized early on, and I think that the, the novice Catan player doesn't, um, value ore or coal enough, um, because it's not needed to build your first settlements. Um, it's needed for cities and development cards. But I do think like um, coal and ore are very important. But we could have a whole. Wait, you mean rock and uh, yeah? I have different names for them. Everyone has different names for them. Like I, one I, of them, like, I've heard there's clay, heard there's ore. grass, there's you know. Like so, I call I call I call clay brick, and maybe I, it and, probably is brick. No, I think it's like. I think it's clay. I think you're right. It's clay, but the clay, but the ore kind of looks like I don't know. Anyways. Um, Rufus, she, what is your what is your goal for your golf game in in this 2021? Good question. So my the goal for my golf game isn't a specific score, but my goal is to be a someone that takes a divot after the ball regularly, which is something that I still can't do. Uh, it, I'm yeah. When I take are when you, I take a big taking, divot, I'm hitting the ball fat. Are you like, taking a lesson at all? I I should the only I'll tell you the times when I can actually get ball before before ground like I literally I just I line up and I rather than looking at the ball I look like you know a few inches in front of the ball and pretend I'm trying to hit that <laughs> I have to trick but myself but that's not like necessarily a bad way to do it right because that is ultimately where you want your your swing to sort of shallow out right yeah but if you, you go if, if you sort of look too far forward you end up pull yanking the ball a pull Mm-hmm. If but, only you could actually look forward and then move the ball mid swing, that would be the look. goal. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for joining us. We will do another one of these because there were some great questions that we didn't get to. Um, we appreciate all you guys, um, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. Simulate a system to break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are but the engines running off a of leaded. 